Indeed, one day he is coming, and what a glorious day that will be. I hope you're looking forward to that day as God's people. Well, as you know, we spent several weeks in 1 Corinthians 13, and the last couple of sermons sort of focused on that perfect that is to come, and uh, we talked about for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, and we talked about the glories of heaven. And so I thought it might be good with my trip to India to uh, before and after it for two weeks to talk about a little bit more about heaven. And we're going to be doing this from Revelation chapter 4. Probably notice the scripture readings were uh, a little challenging maybe to get through, Ezekiel 1 in its entirety the visions that are there, and then even Revelation 1, the first uh, vision of John regarding Christ. And um, I trust you will see how that fits uh, into our message from Revelation chapter 4. It's no secret that in 2017, uh, last year, one of the most devastating hurricane, uh, as far as all the various storms and hurricanes that came, uh, were some of the worst in all of history. Um, I believe one of the early ones that had the, a lot of destruction was Hurricane Harvey. As it hit Texas, it built up strength in the Gulf, and the storm is larger and larger. And, and as it comes upon shore, the destruction is incredible. The strength of these storms are phenomenal. And, you know, you look at the news reports from the helicopter looking down at the devastation, the flooding, and all of those types of things. Of course, we know that Irma and Maria and other storms would come and devastate parts of the Caribbean and all of that. But the point is, is that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of difficulty and trials that we go through, there is a place of peace and calm a place of perfect order, and that is in heaven. In fact, as they're examining these storms, the hurricane center, they fly these jets and they get high above them. And what happens when they get to the very middle of the storm, above the eye? It's perfectly calm. And so from that looking down, the eye is perfectly calm. And so too, there is a place called heaven that is calm and peaceful and with much order. The context of Revelation, not going to be able to set the full context of it, but it's the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and all the persecution that they were enduring. And so Christ tells John to record this vision and as it were, gives him a glance into heaven, lifted up from all the turmoil and the persecution and even the martyrdom that we see in Revelation 2 and 3, that he's able to have this glance into heaven. The persecution and difficulty that these churches underwent, and I, you, we could list many, many verses um, that talk about that, um, in contrast to the peaceful serenity of heaven was a needed vision. Let me remind you, the purpose of this book is to encourage Christians in the present. And so just for these early chur- these churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, again, seven the known number of completeness, to all the churches of Asia Minor um, that were enduring persecution, being forced to emperor worship, as this would be in the late 90s AD, um, they need encouragement. 
that God is reigning. God is sovereign. He is on the throne. Everything is in complete control from his vantage point. And so in Revelation 4, we have the the rich privilege, as it were, to rise up above our troubles, to be lifted up out of our circumstances and our despair and our depression and to rise up and to get a glance, as it were, into heaven. And this glance that we are given, that is recorded in Holy Scripture, was a present reality 1,900 years ago, and it is an ongoing reality today. And we must believe that. Now, the Old and New Testament refers to heaven over 800 times in the various Hebrew and and Greek words. Sometimes it just refers to the heavens, you know, and that kind of thing. But the place where God dwells, hundreds of times it refers to that. Of course, we know our different atmospheres and and so forth. We have the, the trosophere that goes up to six miles, the stratosphere up to 32 miles. But Paul speaks of this place where he was caught up into the what? the third heaven, right? So that there's somewhere along the ways that it's out beyond these things of our environment and what we know, somewhere far beyond all of that. You might think of all the planets and moon and stars and all of that, the universe and that kind of thing is so far beyond. And it's, it's almost as though the third heaven is beyond that. And that's a phenomenal thing. If you think about the two thieves on the cross with Christ, when that one thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So what kind of, you know, picturing it being a vast distance away, um, how fast that, how fast the travel must have been or whatever, or it's instantaneous, we don't know. But the Bible is clear, brethren, that God is so vast and great and all of that, that nothing can contain him. He is awesome and infinite, and there's a sense in which heaven cannot contain him, and yet heaven is called his home, where he reigns. And so today, we'll look at this rare view into heaven to see that God is on his throne, and he's reigning in perfect sovereignty. That's great encouragement for the Christian today, the Christian that's seeking to be faithful, to walk the straight and narrow, seeking to reach the celestial city, seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, but while fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is great encouragement for us. He reigns, and he reigns victoriously. So let's read Revelation chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone or a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of the burning, a fire burning around the throne, and seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. 
And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf or an ox. The third creature had the face like a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sit on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, power, for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess we need your assistance even during this time to have understanding in our minds and our hearts. We are so limited and finite. We are so um, entrenched in in this world and, and the things of this world is hard for us to think of another realm such as this, a perfect order, no sin, pure adoration, and giving you the praise and honor that's due your holy name. So Lord, as we have an opportunity with John to uh, have a glance, have a glimpse into heaven, Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would fortify our faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is uh, quite a scene that we have here. And um, John beholds this vision of God and all of his glory being worshiped. And we need to understand that the course of history and throughout history, some of you are history buffs, you study various empires, the course of history is not determined by um, mighty armies and political regimes and, and emperors and rulers as much as it is by a sovereign God who sits on his throne, who has decreed everything that is to come to pass. John's vision allows the suffering church, as Dennis Johnson says in his excellent commentary, to look through heaven's door, to get a glimpse of God's tranquil sovereignty over earth's turmoil. Tranquil sovereignty over earth's turmoil. I think that captures it good. And for those of us who are Christians, this should bring comfort to us, as I said earlier, because we are pilgrims in this world We often face trials and trouble and suffering of various kinds. And we can be assured from this text that God is on the throne. Revelation 4 and 5, which really go together as a unit. It's unfortunate that there is a chapter break, but it works well for us because chapter 5 we'll look at next time. But they really do go together as a unit. And William Hendrickson, which I encourage you to read his commentary more than conquerors on Revelation, you'll get a good understanding of it and see that there's seven repeated themes, even as seven is the number of uh, perfection. But he says this, four and five is the key in setting up the stage for the rest of the book. Um, Unless we clearly grasp this point, we will never see the glorious unity of Revelation. We shall lose ourselves in allegory, 
The main lesson is expressed in the words of the psalmist. Jehovah reigns, let the people tremble. He sits above the cherubim, let the earth be moved. Greg Beale as well um, actually speaks about Revelation 4 and 5 and draws so many analogies. I think there's 404 verses in Revelation. 275 are references to the Old Testament. So we often think Revelation is all this futuristic type of thing, and we need all these codes and you know maps and everything to, uh, to crack the code, as it were. No, all we need to do is know our Bibles and to see how John is using the Old Testament to communicate his message. And we'll look at more of that next week. But Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah heavily quoted in this book. So today, three thoughts, very simple thoughts. John is summoned into heaven. We get a view into heaven and then the worship of heaven. So first of all, verse 1 to 2b, he says, after these things, I looked and behold. After what things? After the recording of the seven churches, two and three? No, I don't think so. We have to go back to the first vision of which we read uh, in our scripture reading. And this will give us the clue as to who is speaking here as well. Uh, he is summoned to come up here. Chapter 1 and verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. John often grasps for words, and he says, it's, I saw something like this. I heard something like that. And so he's grasping for words to give comparisons for us. So he hears something of a, uh, the sound of a trumpet. And of course, it is the voice of Christ, and he's getting this vision of the glorified Christ that we just read. That reality, we all need to grasp this present reality in heaven. God sits on his throne. This voice of a trumpet is a voice of authority. It's Jesus Christ who is speaking. And then notice he says, in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit. Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. What is important about that? Does that mean he wasn't in the Spirit or he didn't have the Holy Spirit or that he wasn't saved? Of course not. But that phrase occurs only four times in Revelation, four of the most important times. I'll let you do the homework to figure that out. But we saw it in chapter 1, right before the vision of Christ. We see it now, the vision of heaven. I guess I'm going to tell you where they're at. Chapter 17, the, the harlot Babylon, the great enemy. And then chapter 21, heaven. So you think about it, glorified Christ, heaven, the harlot and then the, you know, the, the heavenly scene in chapter 21. But they introduce something that is very, very important as you study the book. And we don't know when John wrote down these experiences. We know he's exiled on Patmos, and he's, he's writing this down. If it all came at once, uh, how much time has passed from chapter 1, we don't know, and it's, I don't think it's very important. Secondly, the view of the heavenly throne room, 2b to verse 7. He sees a throne standing in heaven. Revelation uses the word throne 38 times. Half of them are in chapters 4 and 5, of which we are looking at. It calls to mind pictures of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, as well as Ezekiel 1 that we just read, and Ezekiel 10 for that matter. And then, of course, who could forget Isaiah 6, right? where Isaiah sees um, the Lord high and lifted up. We're going to read that later. 
So we don't want to get caught up into every minute detail. What is the purpose of this overall vision to the original hearers that are hearing this read? And it is that God is on the throne. Furthermore, notice that the description given of God, which we're going to look at in just a moment, there's not all these details and brush strokes to where an artist could say, I could go paint that and have some image of what God looks like. It's just not there. It's brightness, it's light, it's jewels and these kinds of things. And that is because of God's great wisdom. Moses reminded Israel in Deuteronomy 4, watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form of the day of the Lord when he spoke to you at Horeb in the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure. So God speaks from, as he's given the Ten Commandments. His voice is thundering. The people are terrified. But what Moses is here saying later in Deuteronomy as he closes out the 40 years is that God did this for out of his great wisdom so that you would not go make a graven image. So too for us here. We don't have, we there's not a bunch of brush strokes that we can make to say, that's what God looks like and bow down and worship it. So there's wisdom to what he reveals. And what does he reveal? Verse 3. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone. <laughs> okay, is God a big stone or what? You know, no, of course not. Uh, he who was sitting was a jasper stone and a sardius stone. That's a stone that comes from Sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. We know that Paul says that the Lord dwells in unapproachable light, brightness, uh, unapproachable light, blinding light. A jasper stone is a translucent rock crystal, something like a diamond. And then the um, the other stone, the sardius, is how it says in the NAS, is a stone that actually was mined in Sardis, and it's a blood red stone. And then the rainbow all around the throne, we're told. It's the idea of all the way around in a circle, perhaps like a halo, Similar, Ezekiel 1, verse 28, in the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And then, skipping verse 4, there's an emerald in appearance. Various meanings of this have been suggested, that the jasper speaks to the majesty and holiness of the Lord, Sardis, his judgment and wrath, it's blood red and emerald green, a picture of his mercy. And of course, the rainbow likely points to the idea of when was the rainbow given? After the flood. And it was a promise that God would not judge in this fashion again. And we know from Second Peter 3, he will judge with fire. He will not judge with um, uh, a, a flood again. But it's a picture that his judgments will be tempered with his great mercy. And we know that is because of Christ. And then verse 6, before the throne there was something like, notice this, something like, like, you know, a sea of glass, like crystal, in the center and around the throne. A sea of glass points to the perfect, peaceful purity of God's sanctuary. In the center and all around the throne 
is where this is at. And, and it speaks to God's holy separateness, no doubt. And then also maybe an allusion to the bronze basin that was outside of Solomon's temple, which was for cleansing. Um, the sea in Revelation, usually when it occurs, there's beasts and bad things coming out of the sea. But here, it's a sea of glass. And it points to the peaceful purity of God's sanctuary. A sea of glass around the throne. Ezekiel one twenty two. And we've already read some of these verses. I'm just bringing these back. Now, over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like an awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. And this speaks of something that was above the four living creatures. We see something of a reference to this again in that heavenly scene in Revelation 21, where he says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. The purity and judgment of the throne we see in verse 5. Out of the throne came, so you have all this peaceful serenity and sovereignty, and then here there's flashes of lightning, sounds of thunder. Then there were seven lamps burning, a fire, lamps of fire burning before the throne and seven spirits of God. Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. What does that take you back to? The giving of the law, the moral law in Exodus 19. It says in verse 16, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet so that the people of the camp trembled. <laughs> they were afraid. And rightly so. This idea of thundering, as you see thunder occur again and again in Revelation, it's usually at times of profound, intense judgment. For example, you see it in chapter 8 and verse 5, the breaking of the seventh seal. You see it a little later in, in chapter 11 of the seventh trumpet and then with the seventh bowl. And so the, the idea of this thunder coming it's symbolic of the awesome power and majesty of God, even in his dispensing of his judgment because of his great holiness. And then seven, as you know, number of perfection that's many, occurred many times. At the end of chapter one, we saw it. There's seven churches. There's numerous, numerous times. And the seven lamps speak of the abundance of light that is coming from this throne. The seven spirits, the sevenfold completeness of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit of God. Well, now let's move on to the host around the throne. Who are these creatures and elders and, and so forth? Let's move on to that, and we'll take a little bit more time there. Let's go back again to verse 4. And around the throne, we've got the throne, jasper, sea of crystal, rainbow, right? Brightness, thunder, lightning. Not much to get an image, a graven image from right there, right? But around the throne, we have a little bit more descriptiveness. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments with gold crowns upon their head. Here we are given some detail of those that are found around the throne. Now we need to actually just remove from our mind the linear kind of thinking like, like the pul I'm up here behind the pulpit, you're out there in rows in a line facing this way. 
this picture gives us the image of a circular thing. 24 thrones around the throne, the sea of glass around the throne. It's concentric circles as each group goes out. And so that's the first thing we need to kind of remove from our mind. Remember, it's, we went, you know, the, the heavenly beings only have two eyes, right? Eyes all around and all of that. And of course, God, that it doesn't have to be one direction like it is for us and our limitedness. So picture the bullseye of a target being God the Father on the throne and, and then the elders and the living creatures and so forth and so on, the angels and then all of the redeemed. But here we have these 24 elders and also the four living creatures. Similar to the tabernacle and the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, and then the place where the priests could go, and then where the Jews could go, and then where the Gentiles could go. It's the same kind of thing. Now, who are the 24 elders? Uh, if it wasn't a formal worship service, I'd ask for input. Um, I mean, there's only 21 different views. Um, we could take the next hour and go over all of those, but we won't. But who are these elders? They're dressed in white, right? They, they're wearing gold crowns. It indicates a group that has been coronated and lifted up in some fashion or some way. Um, they occur several times in Revelation. We see them sit. We see them fall down in worship, as we'll see later in this chapter. They sing. They speak. They interpret, which is important for us as we try to figure this out. Now, dispensationalists, there may be one or two sprinkled around here somewhere, would say, this is the raptured church. This is a whole church that's raptured, and we're the elders, and we're on the thrones, and I see some snickers and smiles. Now, some, and there's a lot of, there's some credit to this, some think it's the church in its totality, okay, all of the redeemed. Uh, there's another view that would say, no, it's since there's no longer Jew and Gentile, we're one people of God, you've got the 12 patriarchs, and the 12 apostles, okay? That that would be representative of the 24 thrones. There's a lot of merit to that, and that would be my typical most favored response. However, we see in chapter 5, and we'll see next time, that this group seems to be set apart from those who were purchased with the blood of Christ. And you'll see that in chapter 5 and verses 9 and 10. Furthermore, turn to chapter 7 and verse 13. <clears throat> and one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So this particular elder is differentiating himself from one that has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, where does that leave us? And I realize I'm probably raising more questions than giving answers. Um, it is possible and probably likely that this is some exalted group of angels, not lower A, but capital A, representing the entire redeemed community. 
And so they're not just any angel, but they're specifically chosen to represent the covenant community of God's elect, those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. That would be both Old Testament and New Testament saints as one people of God. And they are listed first here as though of first importance of the creatures of heaven. They render praise and honor and glory to the Lamb. They have golden crowns that has caused some to mistake that though they were redeemed. But these crowns refer to the royal dignity that is given to them, and they are very, very closely associated with the throne of God and representing the saints. Now, if that wasn't confusing enough, let's go to the four creatures. The four creatures, we see that... um, Four is the number of creation in Revelation. Uh, King James Version says the four beasts. There's a different word for beast when it occurs in Revelation 13. So creatures would be a better way to, uh, to phrase this. So it's verse 6b, the center and around the throne, the sea of glass, and then the four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. And then the first creature like a lion, the second like an ox or a calf, the third like a, uh, the face of a man, and the fourth, like a flying eagle. These are, in, are the center and around or in the midst of the throne. They share the characteristics of the creatures that we read of in Ezekiel chapter 1, but there's several differences, but they're, it's similar in scope. They have six wings, four for worship, so they cover the face, cover the feet, and two for what? Moving about. And it's almost as though the idea here is that these, these creatures are those that hover like a hummingbird that comes and stops and hovers and moves away. And then what's the, Greg Gaiman was flying the ospreys, you know, the, at Miramar, you see them, they just go straight up and they can just hover and then they can take off really quick. Um, that's what these types of exalted angels are able to do. And these four li- living creatures and the seraphim, as we see in Isaiah 6 as well, they are there to fulfill God's command. Whenever the command would come, they're quick to go and to dispense whatever they have been commanded. These are heavenly creatures of the highest order involved in the worship and the very government of God. And you say, but why a lion and an ox in the face of a man and an eagle? Well, William Hendrickson says that it's a picture of them as a group. They have the strength of a lion, the ability to serve as an ox, the intelligence of a man, and the swiftness of an eagle. Chapter 4, their main activity that we see here is worship, but we must keep in mind that they are also used throughout the rest of the book in implementing judgment on behalf of Almighty God. In Revelation 6, they summon the four riders and the horses, okay? And so they summon them to come and to pour out the afflictions on the earth. In chapter 15, verse 7, one of them has the seven bowls of God's wrath, which he gives to the other angels to go and dispense upon the earth. And so they're very closely, just like the 24 elders, knit to and around the throne, but they also are used to dispense God's judgment. These living creatures have eyes all around. Don't try to visualize that. You'll get a headache. Uh, But what does it mean? Alertness, ready to serve. Nothing's going to get by them, okay? Eyes all around. Comprehensive intelligence and ceaseless vigilance, we might say. 
They take in the fuller glory of God as they are closer. We are so limited with a finite mind and two eyes, and yet these creatures are there taking in the very glory of God. Quoting Greg Beale in his thousand-page commentary on Revelation, which is excellent, he says this, the four creatures represent all animate life throughout creation. The 24 elders represent the elect of God's special creation. So you think of the creatures representing creation, really, animate life and creation. The 24 elders, the special creation of God's elect. Well, let's move on to verse 8 to 11, the last point, the worship around the throne. And we have here, really, in Revelation 4 and 5, you have five worship scenes and songs, as it were. There's two in chapter 4, and the three we'll see next time. And they're very much set up with poetic form. They build upon each other. The participants that praise and glorify the one on the throne gets larger with each doxology. Okay, so that's something to actually notice as well. In fact, here in verse 8, it says, the four creatures and each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within day and night do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So we have rather small quartet, you might call it, right? The four living creatures, they're there singing holy, holy, holy. And of course, we know from Isaiah, it's the seraphim, which uh, could be the cherubim. The terms are used interchangeably sometimes. We'll read that later. And so you have this very small group here. Now down in verse 10, we're told the 24 elders who fall down before him, who sits on the throne, they worship him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones down before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So first you have the four, then you've got the 24 that we just heard, and then Of course, chapter 5, you'll see them come together for the 28. And then later in chapter 5, you've got the myriads of angels added to that anthem. And then the very last one at the end of chapter 5 is all of them, the angels and all of creation singing praise to him. So these first two that we have in chapter 4 focus on the worship of the Father, okay? Chapter 5, it shifts to the Lamb, um, the, the Son of God. And so we will see that very clearly as well. This anthems of angels, it's, it's amazing. This holy, holy, holy. Why holiness? Why is that so important? Why do they choose that one attribute? Why not you know, some of the other attributes? Well, holiness is a fundamental attribute. It's almost as though it regulates everything else that he does. When he loves, it's a holy love. When he gives mercy, it's a holy mercy. When he dispenses his judgment and his wrath, it's a holy, it's tempered by his holiness. And so holiness is a fundamental attribute. The others, as it were, flow from this. He's called the Almighty, that's ascribed to God alone. Glory and honor relate to his perfection and then thanks for his great gifts of creation and redemption. 
And then in verse 10, we already read it. They're falling down before him, worshiping him. And then this anthem in verse uh, 11 deals with more attributes and worthiness and power displayed, particularly in this one, in creation. By your will they existed and were created. That speaks of the decree of God, the secret decree of God, which is a very important concept. Let's turn to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, briefly. Verse 1, in the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And the one called out, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah's response, Woe is me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is probably a believer. Uh, The king has died. He goes to worship, and he has this vision of the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, we know from John chapter 12 and verse 41 that this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that he sees in a vision on the throne but the angels that are all about to the six wings covering the eyes and, and the feet. So four wings have to do with worship and declaring his holiness, while two, as I said, deal with service and mobility and being able to move around. But after they said this, and this was, they, they were speaking to each other, holy, 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 you know, back and forth type of thing. The, the um, foundations of the thresholds of the temple trembled at the voice of them that were calling out. And what else? The temple was filling with smoke. We know from 1 Kings 8, that's a a sign of God's presence coming in there in a powerful way. And of course, Isaiah is completely undone uh, at this vision. So we've had to race through Revelation 4. Hopefully we'll... uh, Uh, take a little bit more time on chapter 5 when we get to it, but just a couple points of conclusion today. We serve a majestic, a holy, and a sovereign God. We need to remember that Revelation 4 is not something that was a, a picture 1,900 years ago, and I wonder how it's changed. It's a present reality even for us today. And the church, our church, our people, our members, need a fresh new vision of this because it will give us great boldness in our ministries, in our evangelism, in our preaching. It'll give us great encouragement to press on, to move forward, because we know that a sovereign God is ruling all things. You see, the church at large, the church out there, has lost a sense of fear of the fear of God. It's become a man show and a comedy show and and all of these types of things. And what needs to happen is the church needs to have a vision of what we have just seen. 
They need to go to that door and glance in and see this heavenly scene. Hear the anthem. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And maybe that would temper some of the folly and silliness that takes place in so-called churches. We need to recover a fear, a, a holy reverence of the Lord. And even we ourselves in our prayers, we've talked about this 1 Corinthians 13 and love and a response of God's great love to us, but all too often we have little thoughts of God. And we need to recapture the grandeur and the glory of God in our prayers and how we live. And if you're outside of Christ, you've gotten a glimpse, you've heard the angelic praise from Isaiah 6 and, and the praise from Revelation 4 that God is holy. He does not wink at things. You will stand before this holy God someday. Honesty demands that you admit that you are a sinner. You've missed the mark of perfection that God calls you to. And so to run to the Lamb of God, to run to Jesus, the one that has died on the cross, the one that was our substitute, run to Him, cling to Him, fall at His feet like Mary did, grab the feet, kiss the feet, confess your sins to Him, repent and turn, and He will save you, lest you harden your heart and be cast into an everlasting torment in hell. And brethren, for us, we need to continue to capture this heavenly perspective. Though we see in the mirror dimly, it's indirectly, it's not a clear, someday we'll be face to face. And we will know even as we have been known, as we've been considering that. Our lives filled with all this trials and difficulties and difficulties and sufferings, but we need to remember some of the promises of the overcomer. It says, In chapter 3, verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Just working backwards, chapter 3, verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Chapter 3, verse 5, he who overcomes will be thus clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Chapter 2, verse 26, He who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, with, as the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces, as also I have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Chapter 2, verse 17, he who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him the white stone with the new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Chapter 2, verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 7, He who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Now, the application isn't, I've got to go be an an overcomer, a Nike, you know, to overcome. uh, Because we trust God that he will cause us to persevere. But there's a sense in which these promises that are to us drive us in our obedience, forgetting the things that lie behind, pressing forward and towards these things with a greater vigor and diligence in this life. 
And sometimes it's good to just take a time out, take a a day and go away and fast and pray or a morning or an hour in your prayer closet and rise up, as it were, in the, the plain above the hurricane and the turmoil that's going on here below and to rise up above it to experience that peace and recapture the vision of Christ. Colossians talks about if you've been raised up with Christ, Keep seeking the things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. Set your mind on things above. Psalm 73, Asaph, is he struggling with the idea of the wicked prospering? It's until he comes into the worship of God and he gets the right perspective then when he enters the house of the Lord. And so too, we want to be those that long for worship among God's people, to worship corporately where God meets with us in a very special way. And this should whet our appetite to desire, to want to go to our heavenly home so much the more. Well, let's pray. Oh, Father, forgive us for our small thoughts of you. Forgive us for our misrepresentations of you. Forgive us for even any inkling of graven images that maybe was in our minds at any given time. Lord, we pray that you would bring renewal to every heart here, that we would be more enamored and more amazed at your great love for us, your reigning sovereignty. We thank you for the Lamb who died in our place. Lord, we want to long to meditate and to know you more. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring these things about and that you would help us to reflect on this passage and the chapter that follows in the coming weeks, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.